You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Thank you. Hey, good morning. I'm glad you're here. You know you uh, lost an hour of sleep, if I need to remind you. But you're doing all really well. I love to see that. I really do. Now listen, what might happen this morning is around 12 o'clock, another group may come in. Don't laugh at them, all right? Just act like they're not here. Just, you know, just let them sit down and uh, don't shame them. Don't do that. So it's so good. It's really good to be here and be able to worship and do the things that we're able to do together that you don't, uh, you don't have otherwise. You don't have these opportunities uh, that often to come together as a congregation, as a family, as a group that just love Jesus. And so I'm thankful that we get to do that. We really enjoy that. I, I think you remember uh, the beginning of the year, Annette and I shared with you some, some words that we pray would help guide you through the year. And we do that usually every year. Uh, we pray over this church and our community, and, and we ask the Lord just to share with us, our hearts, what, what He's up to. And we, we gave four words at the beginning of this year, uh, imparters of His grace, uh, be light bearers, identity restored, and then the fourth one, steadfast. And, and that's where I want to go for just a moment with you. It has to do with being steadfast and that we would remain steadfast in the days that we live. And, and this is about spiritual warfare. It really is. It's about spiritual warfare. There's a spiritual battle going on right now. It's fierce because it's about our identity in Jesus Christ. You know, if the enemy can attack you in any area of your life, any area of the walk that you have with Jesus, it's going to be about who you are in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's where he's going to go. That's, that's what he's going to try to, to diminish in you, to diminish your resolve in following Jesus. I see this especially happening with our, our, our young people. Uh, they're the most vulnerable right now. There's so many voices that our kids are hearing. They're hearing voices from their schools. They're hearing voices uh, about who they should be from our society, our community. And those voices come with a lot of influence. They, they really do. They come with a lot of pressure. I think the intention of those voices often is to separate our children from their God-given identity, from who God has called them to be, who God has said for them to be. Now, the method the enemy uses is, is not a new one. He comes and he brings lies. He did it in the garden with Adam and Eve. He did with Jesus in the temptation, and he does it with us. Typically, this is what you find. The lies that he brings are not necessarily blatant lies as much as they are bended truth. And that's why we have to be on guard. We have to be on point and being sensitive to God's Holy Spirit so that we can see and hear what's going on around us in the, in the spiritual aspects and dynamic of our walk with Jesus. Now, our response, what should that be? I talked to you a, a while back about this. It's to disrupt and destroy the lies of the enemy. That's what this is about. And the way that we do that is with targeted prayer, aggressive prayer, warlike prayer. And so what I'm talking about, you've heard this before, what I'm talking about are lie-seeking prayer missiles, you know? When, when you know that your children have been told a lie, when the enemy drops a lie bomb on them, that what we want to do is we want to send up a prayer missile, and what we're doing is we want to destroy the lies of the enemy that want to take captive the minds and hearts of our kids and our family, our marriages. And we're serious. I, I think there's such a passion right now for me to continue this way to pray over you, 
to pray over our community. And that's what we're going to do, our, our parents, our grandparents, family. Don't compromise in this area. Whenever you see an open door, whenever you see an opportunity to really pray or inject that targeted prayer over the lives of your kids, don't hold back. Pray in Jesus' name. We're going to stand in the gap. We want to intercede. We, want to, we really do want to pray. And we know this, and it's what uh, 2 Corinthians tells us. It says, for though we live in this world, we do not engage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's a responsibility that we have when we pray. Annette and I have been doing this uh, every day for the last three or four months. We, we typically do this every day, but I think we are just so passionate right now, so purposed right now, that we get together before we leave the house and we pray out loud for each one of our kids and our grandkids. It used to take us two minutes, now it takes us ten. You know, there's, there's, they're growing. And so what we want to do is really be serious about what God's up to. And so we, we speak their name out. So when we're praying for our family, we say, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you captivate the hearts of our children for Ronnie and for Sarah and for Ella and for Jack and Joe. And then we move right down the line. And for me, during the course of the day, there are names that you hold dear to your heart that I pray for. I pray for your kids and your family because there is so much at stake right now. We're living during a pivotal time. And what we need to do is we need to stand in the gap. We need to be strong and pray in the name of Jesus. And I want to do that today. I want to practically apply that for us today, this morning. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is just stand for a minute. I'm going to, Annette, come on up here with me. And uh, what I'd like you to do, uh, if you came to church, you still like your spouse, take their hand, all right? And this will help you if there were any arguments on the way to church. This works. And uh, what we're going to do is... We're going to hold hands, grandmas, grandpas, friends, family members, if you're around a family. This is everybody. We want to do this together. And what we're doing, this is really an expression of our unity for what we are about to do. And that is pray in the name of Jesus over our kids, our grandkids, our community. And would you say amen to that? Amen. We're going to do that. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray. And when I pray, there's going to be a part in the prayer that I'm going to pause for like five, ten seconds. What I want you to do is you fill that pause in out loud with the name of your children, with the name of your grandkids, whoever is on your heart to pray for, you say their name out loud. You, you say it out loud. And so we're going to do that together. I want to stand here with you. I want to stand fast with you. And we're going to join together in Jesus' name. And so here's what we're doing. In Jesus' name, we disrupt and destroy the enemy's plan for each one of our children and our grandchildren. And Lord, here are their names. Say their names. Lord Jesus, we speak over Ronnie, Ryan, and Sarah. Lord Jesus, we speak over all of our children. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would do a good work. A good work. Lord, you have heard the names. You know that they've been in our hearts. We know that you've walked with us in those times of silence, those times of pain. In the evening hours when we intercede for our children, Lord, we just pray right now as 
you, uh, you, you intercede for us on our behalf. And as we've given these names to you out loud, we've given these names to you and we stand fast in Jesus' name for what you are going to do, what you're about to do in the lives of our children and our families. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen. 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 That's doing business right there. Okay, you may be seated. You may be seated. We want to continue to do that. We will do that with you, for you. Um, we really will. We're going to continue to pray for your kids. So with that, open your Bibles with me again, if you would, to John chapter 11. We're going to look at John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Uh, that's John 11, 45 through 57. If you remember, last week we did what we call part one of the Jesus problem. And today we're going to continue that message. And the reason we are is, is this, is as we're going through Lent, as we're progressing and getting closer to Good Friday and to the death and resurrection that we celebrate of Jesus, we want to understand what Jesus was about in those last few days of his life here on this planet. We want to, we want to understand what he was going through. And one of the things that we know is that he went through a difficult time. I mean, he, there were struggles that Jesus faced during those especially last several days that he was here with his disciples and, and that people were having to make a decision about who Jesus was to them, what Jesus meant to them. They did back then and they, they have to now. We have to do the same thing now. It, it's, uh, it's a Jesus problem. And so how do some end up with a Jesus problem? How do they end up like those back, back during the time of Christ? How do we end up with those Jesus problems today? Well, it's when Jesus doesn't do what you want him to do. You know, I'm going to make that simple. We have a Jesus problem when Jesus doesn't do what we want him to do. I mean, when we think about the things that we want Jesus to do, uh, he isn't and doesn't need to be obedient to your wishes, your plans, and your desires. Uh, when, when he doesn't meet our expectations, oftentimes we have a, a Jesus problem. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't answer your prayers. He just doesn't always answer your prayers the way you want him to answer your prayers. In fact, he goes above and beyond answering your prayers in ways that you cannot comprehend, in ways that you cannot imagine. That's what it means to walk in faith. That's what it means to come to him and pray and intercede and call on his name. But he's not obligated to do what you ask him to do the way that you want him to do it. You see, when we think he should assert himself... He's passive. When we think that he should be passive, he's assertive. When we think he should say something, he doesn't say something. I mean, we look at this, and it's confounding. Had to be really confounding to his disciples, because there were times that they would just implore Jesus, would you just engage here, Lord? Would you just step in here and do this? And, and he doesn't. He holds back. You think about Mary, the first miracle, the mother of Jesus. Could you just please turn the water into wine? That's what we need. And you, you notice, you read a little bit of hesitation there. And, and so he doesn't do everything that we want him to do when we want him to do it. And the reason why is because he's the maker of heaven and earth. Is because he doesn't consult with anybody. It's because he is sovereign. He has no equal. He is the centerpiece of salvation and civilization. He stands alone in himself. He will not be confined by our best plans for him, and he will not submit to our best ideas about him. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is the great I am. And he cares for every detail in our lives. And this is the Lord Jesus that we absolutely care for and love. So here's what I found out. 
and it's not been easy. This is the long road here. When Jesus doesn't do what I want him to do, he doesn't have a Ron problem. I have a Jesus problem, you see. You see, we have a Jesus problem when he doesn't do what we want him to do. I, I know I've experienced that before. All of us must answer the question, what do I do with Jesus? When our will and his will collide, what do I do? Where do I go? What, what should I say? And last week we discovered some of the conversations that people were having about Jesus. In, in John chapter 11, there are conversations that, that lots of people were, were having because this is the, the final few days of the life of Jesus. And so they were talking about Jesus. We talked about a few of those. In fact, this is all ignited because Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. You remember that? I mean, when Jesus did that, literally everything broke loose. Everything. Can you imagine this? I mean, the evidence is living now. Uh, the once corpse is alive, walking around, eating falafels, drinking water, having a good time. And you can't deny it. And so what happens is it expedites something in the hearts and minds of those religious leaders. And it is, let's get rid of him. Because we don't want, we don't want him here. We, we have a lot to lose if he stays alive and if Jesus stays alive. So you have a hit put out on Lazarus. You have a hit put out on Jesus. All because of this one particular miracle. In verses 45 and 46, people are conflicted about Jesus. That's what we said last week. Some believed Jesus and some didn't believe Jesus. Same problems today. There are people who believe in Jesus. There's some that don't believe in Jesus. And we've all seen the same thing. But people are making different choices here. And then in verses 47 through 52, people have conversations about Jesus. Remember, there are two groups that are having a conversation about Jesus. First of all, it's the religious elite. It's the religious leaders. They're befuddled because of what Jesus has done with Lazarus and because they see that their whole, their whole plan is at stake, that they believe and they feel if they allow Jesus to continue to live or Lazarus to continue to live, that that means that their kingdom is going down. That means their influence goes away. That means their wealth is gone. And so they get together and they ask the question, literally ask the question, what do we do with this guy? He's really messing up our plans. He's messing up our religious programs. What do we do with him? And there's another conversation. I'll call it the water cooler conversation. You go down a little further in this passage in verses uh, 47 and 52. At the end of that, you have uh, the people conversation. You have the you have the normal citizens of Jerusalem. They're gathering for, for Passover. There's a lot of activity. And they're asking, where's Jesus? Is he going to come here? Is he going to hang out? And you know what they're doing? They're saying this. I was here last year during the Passover, and that dude turned over the money changers' tables. Man, it was a show. And so they're thinking, we want to see the same thing again. Because wherever Jesus would show up, there was a disruption, especially those things that God held sacred and important, mainly people and the hearts of people. And so they're waiting around. They're wanting to know where, where is Jesus. So they're having their conversation. And then the conversation we're going to talk about today is the conversation that, that in so many ways breaks your heart. And that's this. People are committed to be against Jesus. I mean, people are committed to be strategically against Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that before. I, I don't know if you've ever had anyone 
overtly come after you because you were a Christian, you were a believer, and they knew where you stood. I, I don't know if you've had that happen. I, I remember the first time it happened to me, and it was, it was startling. It really was startling, and, and what I was doing was just handing out tracts uh, to, to, to young people. I was just in a place where there were a lot of young people, and I was handing out tracts. It was in another country, uh, and they had really been immersed into communism. So there was a, uh, a youth movement, a communistic youth movement during the time that, that I showed up with some others, and we were, we were handing out tracts. And I remember this one, one guy walked right by me, and I had the track, and I said, here, let me give you a track. And, and he looked at me, and I tell you, when he looked at me, I thought the devil was looking at me. He was, he was visibly angry. And what he yelled at me kind of caught me off guard. He said, Stalin hates you. That's what he said. And I just responded back. I said, hey, Stalin's dead. Jesus lives. And, 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 and you know what? Stalin really didn't matter that much to me anyways. I mean, I, he's Stalin. He's a historical figure. But to a communist, that meant a lot. And then he did this. He just came over and he spit on me. And uh, I mean, that, that's not only unsanitary. That just makes you feel bad. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you've ever had that happen, it's, it's, not, it's not fun because of the spirit behind it mainly. And I remember that happening and thinking, that guy just spit on me, you know. And, and I'm being persecuted, you know. And I remember the, that blatant uh, obsession that he had, this gentleman had, this young man had, of being against Jesus Christ. And it, it was startling to me. And now we're going to read a passage of Scripture where we see the same thing even deeper. And what Jesus had to feel. Remember this, I don't want you to discount the emotion of our Lord and Savior. Remember, He's fully God, fully man. Sometimes when we read the, the, the brokenness of what happened in the last few days in the life of Jesus, we have a, a way to dismiss it. Say, well, you know, he was God. Listen, he was broken. There were things that he experienced emotionally that he experienced that were painful things. And this is one of them. And this is what it says. It says, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life from the time he raised Lazarus from the dead. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, and this would be the last Passover that he would celebrate on this, this planet with us. And so it was there that period of time. A lot of people are coming into Jerusalem. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem from, for their ceremonial cleansing before Passover. What that was, was they called them mikvahs. And they had to get ceremonial, ceremonial cleanliness. That's what it was called. And they would have to go into these mikvahs. It's kind of like our water baptisms. In fact, that's how we've adopted, in a way, water baptism. The early churches just took the mikvahs and dedicated those to baptism and baptizing people in Jesus. And so these are mikvahs that sit out right in front of the southern steppe. They come and they get baptized. They're being cleansed ceremonially. That's what's happening here. So they're all... They're all being baptized or cleansed right here. And, and then they kept looking for Jesus. As they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? Is he going to show up? I hope he does. I'd like to see what happens. But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found where Jesus was should report it 
so that they might arrest him. All right, this is what's happening. The word is out. It's on the street. Uh, the people know, the common person knows that, that Jesus is now at odds with the religious leaders. And it's a formal, it's a formal uh, conflict that's happening here that people knew and they know about. So anytime they had to see Jesus or saw Jesus, they would report him. Now, there's something else that takes place that we don't see right here in this passage, but it is worth noting. And that is, while this is happening, something else is going on. What's going on is the inner circle that Jesus has spent three and a half years with is falling apart. Now, imagine that. You've dedicated your life three and a half years. You've been faithful to these people. And now, now the pressure's on. Now, now the, the heat is up and they start to fall away. And how that must have made Jesus feel. I mean, think about your friends and people who have stuck close to you and what it would feel like if they started to fall away when it started getting difficult. We know one of the first, obviously, is Judas. We know that it wasn't just around the table in the Last Supper that he left the room. It happened prior to that. Most theologians tell us, and it's very clear and you can see it in Scripture, when it happened for Judas, when he made up his mind he wasn't going to follow Jesus, was when Jesus with open arms, receive Zacchaeus. He said, come on down, we're going to go have a meal together today. And he forgave him of his sins. The reason Judas hated Zacchaeus, because Zacchaeus represented everything bad and wrong and evil and hideous in the Jewish nation. Zacchaeus was a Jew working for the Romans, extorting his own people to his benefit and wealth. Judas hated him. And you see in that little commentary, and they murmured when they saw this happen. You can be sure that Judas was one of the first to say something, that he was upset, that he didn't like what he saw. We also know that it goes a little further. He thinks Jesus is going to overthrow Rome. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't take the opportunity that, that Judas thought he should have taken during the, the Palm Sunday week to, to, to what we celebrate as the Easter week. He is fed up. He's done. He's saying, I'm done. He's not, he's not following through with what I want him to follow through with, so I'm out of here. So what does he do? He goes to these people. And so Jesus has these layers of problems. He has the religious leaders. He has his own group. He's looking around. That's falling apart. He's brokenhearted. He's by himself. And, and when the Romans look at him, they just see an agitator. When the Jews look at him, they just see a lawbreaker. You want to talk about feeling alone. This is exactly what Jesus felt just a few days before he went to the cross. He was broken. It's a decision made in verses 53 and 54 that begins the time clock toward the cross. This decision sets the gears in motion for a hate crime. Kill Jesus. Kill Jesus. They've already decided the case before there's even a trial. While you think that might be just normal for the day, it wasn't. Uh, people still deserve trials like they do today. This wasn't something normal. This was just expediting the death of Jesus to agree with these principalities saying, hey, are you okay if we execute him? Are you okay? We don't have to have a trial. No, don't have to have a trial. Get him off our hands. We just don't want him here anymore. And so what do they do? They follow through with taking Jesus to the cross. They arrest him and take him to the cross. Why did they want to get rid of Jesus again? Because Jesus interrupted their plans. It's because they, they saw that their nation could fall apart. They saw their wealth going out their door, their influence. What they're saying here is we want to be patriotic. Get rid of Jesus. 
You hear it in the words of Caiaphas, just a few verses up. Just, we need to just get rid of Jesus to save our country. So the question is, did it work? Did they save their country? No, 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 they didn't. And man, did it backfire on them. It really backfired. Because three days after Jesus goes into the ground, he raises again and brings eternal life to all who believe in him. I mean, it, the plan over for the religious leaders, it's gone. But they keep after. They keep after the church. They keep after the body of Christ. What happened is they started a firestorm that they were unprepared to deal with as people all over Jerusalem converted. Multitudes of people converted. They kept accepting and going and following Jesus. Others would tell others they would follow Jesus. And it would go on and on and on. So much so that the Jewish leaders expelled the Christian Jews from Jerusalem. They said, you're out of here. We don't want you around anymore. So there's this first diaspora that happens. They leave because they're under persecution. And the Roman government is always unsettled about these Jews that gather together that are Christians. And the Jews that gather together who aren't Christians just making trouble and so what happens is there is a revolt and in 70 AD the Romans say we've had it we are done with you guys we're coming in and we're leveling everything so what do they do they go up to the temple mount they level the temple they level everything that's up there they tear everything down they burn it they they burn everything to the ground Josephus says this three days later what once used to be there, a magnificent, magnificent building, now you could just drive a plow through it. Nothing's left. It's leveled. They burned it. They took care of it. And the reason was is because they were angry. They didn't want to put up with this anymore. They leveled Jerusalem and the temple right there where they worshiped. A great scholar put it this way. He said, the very steps they took to save their nation were the steps that destroyed their nation. Now, there's something I don't want you to miss here. Something that, that maybe you, you, you might not know about the writing of the Gospel of John. John is the longest living apostle. Uh, he, he's the longest living apostle. And he writes this Gospel in around A.D. 90. Okay? Do the math on this because in A.D. 70, 20 years earlier, everything's wiped out. So can you imagine reading John's manuscript and you're going, whoa, what Jesus said came true Whoa, he predicted this to happen. The irony of them wanting to stop Christianity and Jesus' followers from moving forward backfired because in the meantime, Christianity has spread everywhere around the known world. 20 years go by and Christianity is in every nation that's known around the world. It's amazing. The reason why is you can't stop Jesus. They couldn't stop him then. They can't stop him now. They kept trying. Then and now they keep trying. The government tried. The Roman Empire blamed bad things that happened on the Christians that were in the city of Jerusalem and around the nation. They fed them to lions. They burned them at the stake. And one of my favorite stories, my favorite men in the, the early church is a man named Polycarp. Why do you need to remember that odd name? Because he was a disciple of the Apostle John. See, he, he was one of the converts of the Apostle John, and he is put to the stake to burn because of his faith. You know why they burned him? They called him an atheist. They said, you're an atheist. We're going to burn you. And what, what, what that meant was this. You don't believe in the gods of Rome. You're an atheist. You only believe in one God, and so we're burning you for not believing in our gods. Now, if you want to recant, go ahead. 
The flames are licking. He looks out and he says, I've lived 84 years following Jesus and I'm not going to stop now. You're the atheist and I'm going to see him in eternal life. That was his last words. Wow. I mean, the Roman government was serious about coming after the Christians. This went on for 300 years. But what happens? The church, you, keep growing and growing and growing. You see, some people are just committed to be against Jesus. People are committed to be against Jesus in the way they think, the way they act, the way they believe. You think about atheists today. Atheists that have always been around. There's some famous ones. Frederick Nietzsche. You have Voltaire, you have these atheists, and you have people in communities today, when I ask, what do, you, what do you believe? I'm an atheist. Now listen, I know that a lot of atheists are just in word only. They're probably more mad about God than they really are serious about being an atheist. I understand that. I really do. I, I get that. But I can tell you this, God cares for all of us, and he's going to go find those atheists, and he's going to love them back to faith in Jesus. I know that. I know that we had a gentleman here for four years. He would come with his wife every Sunday. He was a vowed atheist. He wasn't a dumb atheist. He was a smart atheist. I mean, he knew what he was talking about. He studied atheism. He knew. Four years go by, he comes in, and Jesus just floods his life and changes him radically. Today, he's probably one of the best apologists on the planet for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. That's amazing. See, you can't, you can't push him away. Jesus is always going to keep coming. Uh, atheists like Voltaire said this, Christianity is the most ridiculous, absurd religion that has ever infected the world. You want to know something about Voltaire? He dies 20 years later. The Geneva Bible Society buys his home and makes it the headquarters of distributing Bibles all around the world. That's a big backfire right there. I mean, that's second to raising from the dead after three days. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a backfire. You see, what happens here, bottom line, if you oppose Jesus, you stand, you stand with infamous people. Uh, Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, Nero, on and on. Whatever has been attempted or will be attempted will not work. It's been tried and it didn't work. It'll be tried again and it won't work. The more people try always, God finds a way to multiply. He finds a way to multiply. You're part of a community that isn't just addition. You're part of a community that's part of the multiplication of the gospel of Jesus Christ on this planet. It is one of the most beautiful things to be part of. And how do we respond? I mean, how do I live my life here right now, given the climate of the culture I'm, I'm part of. And I want to tell you, I want to tell you how you can do that. It's in Matthew 5. It's part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. But it's Matthew 5, verses 13 through 15. Because we all come to these places and we, we ask the question, okay, Lord, I have this, I'm facing these, this person or these people who are opposed to you. What is my responsibility? What is my responsibility to that? Well, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 15 say this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, you, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
Now, here's what I want you to pay attention to. If you've read this before, if you've been in church, you've, you've probably heard this. You've heard this passage of Scripture. But there's something here that stands out to me. Jesus uses two metaphors here that describes his followers. And it's odd to me he uses those two elements. Now, if you really think about it, when you use salt and light, what do those two have in common? If I'm going to play a word association game with you and I just throw out the word salt, I don't think you're going to say light. And if I throw out the word light, I don't think you're going to say salt unless you've grown up in church and you're, you know, one of those smart people that know this passage of scripture. You might. But those are just unrelated properties. And yet, what does Jesus do? He brings them together to tell us what our purpose is to those that oppose Jesus, to those that live in darkness. He's telling us what it looks like, and he uses salt and light. Jesus puts them together to describe us. Kind of a weird combination when you think about it. It doesn't, doesn't altogether make sense, but that's Jesus, like we said before. He's going to throw things at you that are counterintuitive to your flesh. He's just going to say, hey, think about this one. And then we sit and we think about this. So why does Jesus use the term salt and light? Well, because he's telling us that believers are, have a twofold purpose, again, in our relationships with the world. And that our connection to those without Jesus have a profound and life-changing effect. This is what he's saying. You being in this world have an effect on those that don't know Jesus. That you being in this world have a profound effect on people who don't know Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you bring a change agent. You are a change agent. If you are salt, it's because those without Jesus are dying. They're in a state of decay. That's how they use salt. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. The application he's making is this. That when you had meat, you had to put salt on it to, to preserve that meat. Old countries, old world countries still do the same thing. Prosciutto is salt. It's meat that's dying that you put salt on it to slow down the decay process. So Jesus is looking at you and he's saying that's why you're here. Because if you weren't here, everything goes away. There's no reason. There's no reason for the planet to even exist anymore without the body of Christ. You're here because the world around you is dying. See, Paul said it this way. He said, you know, you used to be this way. He said, you used to be like this. As for you, you were once dead. You were decaying in your trespasses and sin. 2,000 years ago, the primary purpose of salt was, again, to be rubbed into the meat to prevent decay. You are the salt of the earth. It implies that without you, without you, that decaying process just speeds up. With you, there's a, a slowdown because we're still living in a sinful world. But there's a slowdown because you're choosing to live your life being salt of the earth. So what does light imply? Well, the word means it brings light, doesn't it, to a dark world. So the implication is we live in a dark world because the light of the world lives in you. You bring light to the world and relationships around you. So don't cover it up. Don't hide it. Don't be ashamed. Let your light shine. Why? Light dispels darkness. Light shows the way out of darkness. Jesus is saying this. The world needs both the salt and the light. So let's make that really clear. The world needs both. But maybe you're like me. 
I understand light a lot more than I understand salt. Maybe that's true with you. Because both in the old and the new, light is mentioned. Light is mentioned. Uh, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. You go to Psalm 119, and it says about light that it, it's the word of God that lightens our path, shows a light to our path and to our life. So the word of God is described as light. Jesus is described as light. You're described as light. But there's rarely times salt is used to describe us. And I, I had to stop and think about that. What's being said here? So here's the application for us. Notice that salt is good only when it's mixed in. Only when it's applied. Now I'm going to make a connection here. Light is good when it shines on. Here's the big deal for me. I understand biblically light more than I do salt. I really do. But when I look at salt, I recognize that you have to be present to really make it work. That you can't be remote. You can't be separate. You can't be living your life apart from the relationships you have with unbelievers. You see, salt only works when salt is applied. But someone needs to be there to apply it, and that's you. Your presence is the salt. You have to be in proximity of. This can't be just theological thinking up in your head. This has to be, I have to live this out. And when I live this out, I'm a salt agent to the friends and people that don't know Jesus around me because I'm there to touch them. I'm there to live out life with them. I'm there to walk with them. I have a proximity of relationship. See, light shines on, and we need that light shining on. But salt gets in. Salt gets in. Salt's there. Salt implies that we are present and we listen and we live and we walk with those that are around us. So I think this, maybe, maybe our, our ideas sometimes of church might need to change. The idea of just being a place where theology is taught, I think that's important we do that. It's important that we know God's word. It's important that we understand the Bible, but that's not all that is not just where we stop but i think sometimes it's just coming together and let's just let the light shine and then that's it but the salt what about the salt what about our responsibility to be salt and this is this is what i thought of we risk when we're just wanting to be light we risk becoming a fortress and not a force we risk protecting and not proclaiming where the go in the Great Commission is gone. I don't want us to be in a community where the go is gone out of the Great Commission. The Great Commission starts with that one word, go, be salt. Go, be salt, and while you do, shine a light. You see, we have to go. I don't want the message that just keeps me in this box. I don't want to be isolated. I don't want to be uh, living in uh, protectionism and just I'm afraid of everything going on around me. I'm just white knuckling it until Jesus comes back. I'm just holding on until Jesus comes back. Oh, God, come quickly. I'm just holding on. I can't live a faith like that. I can't live a life like that. I want to live a life that's out there and is declaring Jesus Christ with whatever it is I have, whatever it is I do. I want the salt and light to work together to bring others to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light in a world, a dark world. Amen. Would you bow your head with me?
Jesus, we are so grateful the way that you teach us, that you take two seemingly unrelated properties to describe our purpose in the world that we live. Light attracts, salt engages. And then we have to ask the question, what describes us? Lord, what describes us? And that you would continue to fill us and guide us and lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit every single day. And Lord, those that we come in contact with that might be even opposed to you, our light would shine and the salt would engage and bring change. Lord, you've given us this privilege of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for that today. We glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.